Welcome to Losing My Religion, a podcast for and about you. It is the audio diary of a humanist celebrant, a humanist celebrant who used to be a student for the Catholic priesthood. I've come a long way. Outgrowing your religious mindset. For me, it was a lifelong journey. It's essential for me to go back to how I began to develop a religious mindset. And let's face it, almost everybody who has a religious belief came to their religious belief in childhood. Most adults would think, you've got to be joking. Would you go away and get life? But because we absorb these things as children, it is or can be really hard to outgrow them right up to and including our entire adult lives. In the final two or three years that I was at secondary school, I remember wondering, does God exist? Is all the thing about Jesus's death and resurrection, is it true? My view was, if it was true, it had to change everything. But I felt I really needed to explore because I felt if it was true, how could you be just playing golf or becoming an accountant or like if it was true that God became human as we are after millions of years of the earth and evolution of life on earth and eventually human beings arrive on earth and, and then like a mere 2,000 years ago God entered human history and became human like us. He was fully God and fully human and he was transforming the meaning of suffering and telling us about life after death and all of this profound stuff. Like it had to be the most important thing on the planet. Far more important than anything else you could do or think about or choose to be. It had to make a difference if it was true. In the late 1970s and the early 1980s in Dublin and all around the world, charismatic renewal was taking off. A prayer group began in my school and I began to attend it with some of my friends. There were Camp Jesus Youth Jamborees in North Dublin. There were all-night vigils attended by teenagers and adults and priests. There was a charismatic meeting in Donnycarney, which was my parish in Dublin, in Eden Moore and Dundalk. They were all over the place at Dublin Airport. And people were talking about a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, just like what had happened in the Acts of the Apostles when Jesus had ascended to the Father and the disciples were afraid and then the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was released and the apostles were emboldened and encouraged and they went out and they spoke in tongues. Apparently people of different languages knew what they were saying. The gift of tongues and of healing. And they spoke with power and conviction about the risen Jesus. These prayer meetings were typified by enthusiasm and spontaneity. And whereas masses were pretty boring and dry and dead, people in the congregation, quite frankly, and most of us looking bored. But at these prayer meetings, people would maybe stand up or sit as they wished. They would raise their arms up high over their heads or maybe just with their palms open. Prayer was spontaneous. You'd hear, praise you, Jesus. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Glory to God. It really seemed that these people were authentic, that they really believed that they felt it, that it wasn't just in their head, that it was in their heart and with their lives and that their faith mattered to them and was making a difference in their lives. 
And then you'd hear people talking gobbledygook gibberish. And I think, what's that? And then a priest said to me, oh, that's talking in tongues. They're praying in tongues. That's what they did at Pentecost. Well, I thought at Pentecost, people from different languages could understand. But it didn't take me long before I started doing it too. A, a priest said to me, look, just babble like a baby. And I did it. And, you know, it's remarkably freeing when you realise you can just go and put your hands up and everybody else is doing it too. It sounds, and probably is, utterly daft. But there was something freeing about it. And you felt you were part of something and you felt somehow affirmed by it all. This community feeling it, that it was all happening, it was real and, and it was the Acts of the Apostles in our day. A friend of mine told me, I look cool, stand, I'm six foot two, and I'm standing up both arms, stretched out and up, and my palms open and babbling away like a baby. Speaking in tongues, you understand talking in tongues. It's probably like the kind of freedom that people get when they overcome their social inhibitions. They don't want to go up and dance because they feel people are looking at them. And then you kind of think, well, it doesn't really matter. Everybody here is just going wild. And it was freeing. It also helped, of course, that there were girls there. I went to an all-boys school and there seemed to be an unspoken rule in charismatic circles that if it moves hug it. And if it doesn't move, hug it until it moves. I was an innocent, inexperienced Catholic boy. And I thought this was cool. Like at the end of the primary, everybody go around the place hugging each other. And scripture came alive. The Bible, there were parts I could connect with and that meant something to me. Come to me, all ye who labour and are overburdened, and I shall give you rest. Shoulder my yoke and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's kind of beautiful. It's very appealing, this sense of an inspirational figure who wants to be in relationship with you. More than an inspirational figure, God himself. Some lines in scripture are just gorgeous. And like I'm a kind of a literary kind of guy, so some words were words of comfort and of belonging and joy and of affirmation and of mission and of identity and of wisdom. And there seemed to be a whole reservoir of wisdom and comfort and joy and meaning to be tapped into and to learn. It was appealing. And it was so appealing for me that I'd always been a good student. I'd done well in my intermediate certificate. And I just stopped studying because I thought none of that stuff is important. The only important thing in life is God. And what I'm learning here in the Bible and with these fellow believers, it just seemed that it was the most important thing in the world. And why would I be wasting my time or energy studying chemistry or mathematics? Jesus called Peter to leave his trade, his career as a fisherman. Oh, sure, why would I start to develop a trade or profession or anything like that? Can't I nip all that stuff in the boat and get straight in there and just do the most important thing in life, which is to follow Jesus and see where that goes? The family context, of course, is still relevant. My family was a dysfunctional family. I guess all families are to some extent. 
and perhaps in charismatic renewal and a charismatic renewal that was backed and supported by the church. I mean, there was a a charismatic conference in the RDS in the late 1970s and it was attended by just hundreds of priests and there were bishops there, including bishops from Dublin. The RDS is a conference centre in Dublin and the place was packed. This was the Catholic Church suddenly changing gear and catching this moment of the revival of the early days of the church. I remember going to an all-night vigil one time with a friend of mine. and It was the weirdest experience for me personally. I still to this day don't quite understand what happened at it. I know it's perfectly natural, normal, scientifically explainable. One of the things that often happened in charismatic circles was people would be prayed over. They might be prayed over by one person or they might be prayed over by a group. You might kneel down and people would lay their hands on you, on your head, on your shoulders. And they would be praying and they might be praying in tongues. And during this all-night vigil in a priest's house in Eden Moor in Dublin, I was there and it came to my turn to be prayed over. I think everybody was prayed over in the course of the night. Oh, I was prayed over. I just bawled my eyes out. I absolutely cried and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. This day I don't understand why. My suspicion is that it was just releasing a lot of the pent up angst and anxiety of my life of my family. My eldest brother, 11 years older than me, has been banished. My next eldest brother had disappeared. My mother and father had, I think, perhaps by then come to a kind of a detente. And my mother lived in an unreal world. And of course, I, through charismatic renewal, I would now see myself as entering to that unreal world. But there were real people around me who believed it too. And, you know, there was an emotional vitality within charismatic renewal and within those communities which gathered to pray and to follow Jesus. There was a fellowship. There was an excitement. There was a search for a common meaning which was not happening at home. On the contrary, when I would go home, I would dread going home. My heart would sink as soon as I turned onto my avenue and thinking I'm going to go home because he'd never know what kind of a, a mood my mother would be in. And there was just that sense of her closed mind and her unpredictability, her irrationality. Eleanor Rigby wearing a face, a mask she keeps by the door. And you walk in, you wouldn't know which mask she'd be wearing. Anyway, at home, I just felt stifled and both of my brothers no longer lived there. And here was I, 16, 17, feeling I got to get out of here. I'm suffocating in this place. I couldn't even relax. I knew I needed to find a place where I could grow as a person. I needed to find a place where I could grow. I was very fond of my Uncle John. He was a priest in South Africa. My parents got engaged at his ordination to the priesthood in Rome. My Uncle John. I loved him. I saw him rarely. Because he was in South Africa, he'd come home every few years. And when he'd come home, it was a big deal made about him because he lived abroad, because he was a priest. And being a priest in Ireland, in my generation, born in 1960s, it was a big deal. He had TB and he spent 11 years in a hospital. I think he got out once during that time. And then they performed an operation on him. The outcome was that he could leave hospital. They had removed a lung. The other lung was damaged. When he'd be visiting us at night time, he would go to our front door, open the door wide, no matter how cold it was outside, and he would do what he called recharging his batteries. And he would stand and he'd breathe deeply 
and then expel air really deeply. So he was getting as much air into his limited breathing capacity. He still had a voice. He didn't need a microphone. I remember on one occasion at a charismatic event in Ross Trevor, it was a, an interdenominational Catholics, Protestants all together. And he was sitting behind me. We were in a huge marquee, but he knew as a proficient public speaker that you project your voice to the people at the back of the room. So we were at one extreme side of the room and he wanted to make sure that the person at the furthest side of the room would hear him and by god they did i was nearly deafened by him he blasted out spoke with such strength of voice such volume anyway i loved the guy i remember one time it was his last time home before he died and he by then my father had also died and he and my uncle joe my name joe armstrong his wife cora my aunt cora and uncle john and myself and we went to his friends most whom we didn't know we went around counties wicklow and carlow hackettstown ranagrai visiting these people perhaps one or two i may have known but most i didn't and he wasn't by that stage my uncle john was not meant to be drinking for health reasons he wasn't a heavy drinker but i think he probably knew that his own time was close to being up and he kind of thought Asha, what the hell <laughs> and at every single house priest of course arriving the first thing is will you have a, a drop of whiskey father and he said i will and he did and before too many houses had been visited he would promptly fall asleep after each whiskey leaving myself uncle joe and auntie cora to talk to people we probably didn't know so on the 29th of june 1979 aged 17 i wrote a letter to my uncle john and when i was doing my my documentary for rte the doc on one with nicolene greer i showed this letter to nicolene and she said oh you have to use that and i was so embarrassed by it i thought oh really must we and in fact what we did then was my son john was back in 2012 17 so he was at that time the age that i had been when i had written this letter and so we got my son to read it now as is the way with documentaries you have to cut and reduce and shorten everything not much of it survived the editing suite but there is a section of my documentary from belief to unbelief which is still available on rte.com1 rte.ie slash radio one slash doc on one and then from belief to unbelief or just look up my name joe armstrong and you can hear the documentary which i'm very pleased was shortlisted for an award at the new york festival's world best radio awards in 2013 but anyway here's the letter you'll understand why i was embarrassed by this letter but now i'm rather proud so it goes dear uncle john i would like this to be the first letter you receive from ireland after the postal strike there's been a huge postal strike it went on for months the first thing i want to tell you and it's the only thing that's really important is i joined a charismatic prayer meeting and really uncle john it's great exclamation mark Christ's love is flowing more and more in Ireland through the charismatic renewal. Pockets of Christians are opening up all over our city. Only last night we heard news of a new prayer meeting in Sean McDermott Street. And only weeks ago, another one in the Matter Hospital. This, along with the many little-known parish prayer meetings like Eden Moore and Dunny Kearney, and the bigger ones like the airport and Eustace Street. Only in the last few months 
have we seen the increased numbers of dove badges, which are seen worn by all sorts of people. Mass that was boring and dead is now joyful and alive. The risen Christ is seen so often. I love that line because... <laughs> I. <laughs> The risen Christ is seen so often. Well, I didn't see him now, I have to tell you. But I presume I was speaking metaphorically. The risen Christ is seen so often. Four weeks ago, I joined our parish meeting. And I've been gone for months. So the one in our school. We have one charismatic priest in our parish. But only last night, another priest joined us from our parish. I pray that he will get over his initial discomfort. Please, Uncle John, pray for him too. And for all others that are starting to know not only about Christ, but to actually know him. Please, if you have a minute, pray for me too. At present in our parish, we are about 100. In Dundalk, it started at 50. Now, it's a thousand. Last weekend, there was a major gathering at Knock. Many witnessed to healing. One who was so far gone physically had returned an invalid to Ireland to die and he witnessed the healing. Another was cured of multiple sclerosis. Well, I hope now that was verified and I very much doubt if it was. Our own charismatic priest tells of a man cured of a 20-year-old ankle disorder. Maybe he got a decent pair of shoes, I don't know. And mental healing spreads like fire. To those of us within the renewal, it's back to the excitement lost and forgotten for centuries. The excitement of the realisation of the risen Christ. Whatever happened to the church between then and now? <laughs> you know, it feels like we're just continuing on another chapter of the Acts of the Apostles as if there has been no time lapse at all. The fruits of the Spirit are flowing. God is alive. Jesus is Lord. Isn't it wonderful? Oh, sure, I always knew with my head that Jesus was God. I always knew that. I was not interesting to say. How did you always know that, Joe? I always knew with my head that Jesus was God. But now, it's with my heart. I hope I'm not being hypocritical. The enthusiasm, the excitement, seems false. It's so long been absent. Let's praise God night and day. God bless you. Praise God and write soon. <laughs> so there was me. The enthusiasm, the excitement seems false. Even in the midst of that, I was going to say manic, but captured enthusiasm. There was a rational part of me saying, this seems false. And I attributed it to the fact that it might seem false because it's so long been absent. But I think the rational part of me thought still just babbling like a baby and nobody understands these tongues that I'm allegedly talking or anybody else is talking or praying. Shandri, 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 oh yeah, yeah, gobbledygook, babbling like a baby. Anyway, isn't it interesting that even in the middle of what could only be described as a letter of extraordinary religious enthusiasm and excitement, that even in that moment, and I would suggest this is probably true for every believer, that even in that moment, 
no matter how committed the person might seem to be, there is a rational part of them that knows it's false. But it, perhaps it's like everything else seems so real that you're not prepared to wager the belief and the benefits, the hug and the girls, the freedom from inhibition, the appeal to a meaningful life, to a sense of comfort and purpose and joy. You just don't want to believe that that could all be based on something that's false. And sure, in a sense, why would you? Like if you're enjoying it and if you're feeling good about yourself and if you're in community and you're hugging girls and you're crying away years of angst and loneliness and you feel hopeful and you feel you found the moment, the meaning of life. Sure, why wouldn't you place to one side the suspicion you still have that it might all be false? Why would you trade all of those benefits that you are experiencing to attend to the alternative hypothesis that it's all based on a lie? And sure, how could it be? Aren't the bishops of Dublin at that RDS conference? And aren't there priests telling me all you have to do is babble like a baby? And weren't there friends telling me you look great standing up there with your arms extended and praying in tongues? And wasn't it better than my dysfunctional family? And if it was true, and if there was a basis for it, sure, why wouldn't I explore it with my life and join a seminary to become a priest, to proclaim it to the world? I'm interested in hearing your stories of outgrowing religious beliefs, of leaving the cave, looking at shadows and emerging out into the real light of day and seeing what really is rather than the fantasies of your mind. I'd love to hear from you. My email is podcastlosingmyreligion at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at losingmyreligion1. That's at losingmyreligion and the figure one. Please do consider supporting our podcast at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash losingmyreligion. Thank you for listening. Please do follow us so you don't miss any future episode. Talk to you soon. Meanwhile, trust your doubt. Happy days.